Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of Data Dialogues. I'm Julian Redman, General Manager of Service Insight and your host. As we mentioned in the last episode with Dan Lindstad, we're going to be featuring some of the recordings from the Worldwide Data Vault Conference uh, in our upcoming episodes. Starting today with a presentation on the data challenges in research by Richard Strange from the UK. Richard's a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford and he specialises in analysing volcanic seismology data using artificial intelligence. And he's also the acting CTO for an Oxford-based big data agrotech startup. So he's a specialist in this field. In his keynote presentation, Richard explores how DataVault can help with the processes of data science, not only in academia, but in the corporate world. Richard provides some great insight into the common practices and the potential pitfalls of data science. It gives us some really good case studies and looks at how applying the data vault methods can actually support data science initiatives. So I hope you enjoy Richard's talk as much as I did. My name is Richard. Um, you, many of you probably remember um, senior Neil. He's had to struggle with me all his life. I'm sure you'll have the patience to put up with me for about 30 or 40 minutes. Anyway, yes. So I'd like to talk a little bit about um, trying to use data vault in academia and also a little bit in industry and trying to find some of the crossovers and lessons learned from one side to the other. So um, this is me. Um, I've been told I've got to make everything temporal related. So this is me in front of a TARDIS. Uh, this is about six or so months ago. Uh, I'm currently on the scary end um, of a DPhil, which is a English way of saying PhD at the University of Oxford, where I take an awful lot of data from different volcanoes around the world and I try and use AI to work out if they're going to be um, causing us some problems or not. Uh, up until recently, well, um, the end of last year, um, I was the uh, CTO for a startup in Oxford called AgriCompass, where we took satellite and uh, infield sensor data from uh, farms, particularly in LATAM, although a little bit in England, looking a little bit in India, and trying to find ways to help farmers and also provide um, metrics to agricultural insurance companies. Uh, and I'm also working with Data Vault UK, otherwise known as Business Thinking, as a data science and data management consultant for quite a few years now. So this is me. Um, I also want to say I'm not always consistent with what I talk about and the words I use. So I might use the word AI and data science interchangeably. I usually mean the same thing. But if I'm going to be pedantic, AI is just the tool that data scientists use and make. Um, also, I might say AI, AI engineer at some point. Um, that's usually just a specialized form of data scientist. It's usually the data scientists that are a little bit fancier and need to differentiate themselves from the wave of new data scientists in the industry. Typically, they're the ones that build the models rather than people who just copy them. And lastly, machine learning and deep learning. Um, deep learning is just a subset of machine learning. There's a lot of uh, machine learning that can be shallow as well. And usually those are the safer ones to use. Um, anyway, I, I know we've just started today and for a lot of you, you've dipped your toes a little bit into data science. And I know I'm going to plow into the academic side of things, but please don't panic because actually you don't need to know that much about data science to understand how to use it properly within a business setting or even academic setting. Simply put, data science is no different to any other process in Data Vault 2.0. If I was to be very pedantic, I'd say it's no different, but even more so. 
and hopefully by the end of the day I'll be able to explain that properly to you. So I'm not sure if everyone was here yesterday or whether you need a quick refresher to start off the day, but I'm going to plow through what probably matters to you for data science in five minutes. I, I'll try at least. Now, I saw a lovely quote, I can't remember who it's from, it was years ago, so I wish I could attribute it, but it's that data science is the process of turning business questions into data questions. And it seems to sum up very nicely, if I had to tweak it for an academic point of view, it's simply that it's hypotheses instead. And in that way, suddenly the use sort of the idea of data science is this magic sort of um, mysterious thing just starts to be dispelled. And that's really the theme of today's talk that data science really isn't as magical and mystical as you think it is. And it doesn't really deserve a lot of the special treatment it's, it's had. Now, if you look at machine learning, actually the bit that everyone's scared of that's really, that people don't know about will go, oh, I've got no clue. It's all maths. I hate stats. I hate Bayesian. I hate this. I hate that. It's all about the model itself. But that's only one part of the entire puzzle. You know, it's one of, in here, seven steps, you can stretch that even further. So all this hoo-ha and panic over just one small piece of the puzzle. And if I even ask, well, what is a model? The easiest way to break it down is simply to say, well, it's a thing. You put things into it, you take things out, and the thing itself is a series of assumptions and approximations. Now, the nice thing about that is actually your data scientist will understand the assumptions and approximations, hopefully. You certainly pay him enough or her enough to do so. But the rest of it is data, right? And the way either the data you have available to feed a model or the outputs you need from the model to find how the model's designed, never the other way around. And no matter how good the model is, the input data you put into it defines how well it will do and the model's worth is only as good as the outputs it will provide. And again, both of those are just data. So actually, most of how a project's gonna go with AI is dependent upon your jobs, not the data scientists. In terms of input data, the phrase is garbage in, garbage out. It's nothing new, but to put it more politely, it's that your model is only as good as the data that it's given. Speaking about putting data in, one thing people you know, start, are starting to work out is actually your data scientist is very rarely doing the job that you're paying him an awful lot for. You know, most data science projects, the data preparation is about 80% of the time. Then they'll start building and running a model and the very end they'll evaluate it, maybe package it a bit. But that's mad. They're doing you know, work that you know, any other data engineer or SQL developer or whoever else you have in your team can do but they're doing it worse because this is the secret of it. You know, a data scientist might be called as such, but they don't really know what they're doing with data, not in the way that you tend to understand it. So why are they doing a substandard job for most of their sort of employable hours? Now let's look at, again at the inputs. There's only really four types that I can boil it down to. You have what I would call a naive attribute, which is, um, a value, a number, it's a standard um, tabular data. You have temporal data, event stream of some sort, or some sort of timestamp data. You have spatial data that look that is often images, or it can be geographical information. There's also combinations So temporal and spatial data together is video, because it's a temporal set of spatial data. 
There's also reward data that you see in things like self-driving cars or any kind of reinforcement learning where the model needs to be told it's doing a good job or a bad job. That's about it, really. And then on the output side, you get things like identification. So the classic one is this image has a dog in it or a cat in it. That's the one that everyone learns on, but it's any kind of classification. It could be some form of regression where it's a calculation. So they'll try and calculate the house price dependent upon certain parameters, or if a wine's gonna be given five stars or four stars, dependent upon its chemical makeup. There's an action, again, this is reinforcement learning. This is robotics. There's image segments where you want to know if a part of an image contains something. You will see um, Google do a lot of verification on their image segmentation models when they ask you to fill out captures. You've got to tick boxes where there are traffic lights or buses or bikes. Representations are probably the hardest to explain. They represent some kind of instinctive knowledge from the model itself. So it could be a 3D representation of a car. So the model must understand that although it sees the back of a car in front of it, it's also got a side to it. Um, there's also representations in terms of just latent space. So if you slice a model in half and pick out what's in the middle of it, that's a weird high dimensional abstract representation of, of the real parameters it's being fed. That one we won't touch on too much. That gets a bit, let's save that one for the lounge, maybe is a better way to say it. And then the weights, biases and parameters, which is what the model is itself, because it's not just the outputs of the model that matter, it's the model that you've built yourself. Lastly, it's the inputs in terms of the labels. So when you are asking a data scientist to try and solve a problem, it helps for them to know if they can compare their model against known answers. The easiest one is supervised learning. So if I have a list of um, transactions by a number of people, and I know if that person has gone bankrupt or not, for all of them, it's very easy for me to be able to know if my model is accurate or not. Building the model is one thing, but it's assessing its success that's difficult. There's also semi-supervised learning where some of them have labels, unsupervised learning where none of them have, and also reinforcement where a model interacts with an environment and then gets a reward back or not. And usually, label availability dictates in a big way the project you're going to run with your AI. In terms of cost, if you're breaking it down, if you're thinking through your head, well, I've got this in my warehouse, is this labeled, is this unlabeled, what does it matter? Often, good labels don't always exist, and often they'll be hand-labeled by people. This means that the cost prepare is quite substantial, but the model difficulty tends to be less, and the vice versa. Unsupervised learning just requires a quick, you know, information mark, a dump of data, if you like. Now, if I was to whittle down my thought processes on, right, someone's told me I need to do a data science project and they want this kind of a question and there's the data I've, I think I need to use. The first thing is, does my data have the right features? Does it have trends in it that mean that the AI can learn? Because it's not magical, it still has to find patterns. Do I have labels for my data? And can I associate my data in question with good labels? Now I'll touch on this a bit later, but this is where DataVault gets quite useful because exploration links allow us to do an awful lot in this area. And lastly, do I have enough data to meaningfully train my model? I might have good data with the right features and great labels, but I've only got 500 examples. That's not gonna be meaningful. I'll get a, a model that's you know 
at worst, so at best will fail, at worst is quite dangerous because it's Im immensely biased, lopsided, and we haven't been able to catch it. Now, I've talked an awful lot about AI and machine learning and data science, but I've not touched on DataVault yet. So what about DataVault? Well, I could go into it all, but I'd quite like to start with a very small academic data vault. This is one of my own making, and it's a lovely toy example of what happens if we strip away everything except data vault for the purpose of taking in data from a number of sources and presenting it into an AI consumer that then feeds back in. So there's some different priorities you'll find in academic side of things. Now, it's not always true what I'm trying to say, but Generally speaking, the biggest headaches for big data projects of some form, and I don't mean that with a capital B and a capital D necessarily, is they often have a lot, lot of different sources. Often it might be from the same site, the same experiment, but when equipment fails, they'll swap in a new model and that will have a slightly different schema, a slightly different reporting pattern. Um, you'll find that as sensors change in the lab, those will tweak. Sometimes people will turn up with three or four different instruments recording the same thing because that's all they could cobble together. So you'll have simultaneous readings from completely different equipment trying to read and present the same thing. Often that's also hand cranked. Sometimes you know, you'll have terabytes of data that's been moved by a USB stick or flown by a hard drive that's been padded in three pairs of socks. I, I wish I was joking, but often if someone's taking a recording of, say, an eruption that's out in Indonesia, they don't have a lot of equipment. They simply have a seismometer, three hard drives, and they'll pack it into their hand luggage and fly with it. Integrity as well. Now, this is a huge issue about reproducibility. Mo a lot of research groups like to share the data. They'll email hard drives, do Dropbox or Google, um, sort of, uh, Google Cloud storage links. And that's usually the best you can get. So there's no lineage, there's no background. You can't pick out bad data easily. So there needs to be a better way to share data and often update observations when you realize there's been a mistake, especially by hand uh, recorded data. But also, and this is a less common in industry, bad data isn't an artifact, it's often a finding as well. And the last one which I'm sort of leading towards is data fusion. So a lot of real world events aren't always recorded the same way twice. Again, going back to eruptions, which is my sort of area, no eruption in the world ever happens the same way twice. Even the same volcano erupting twice erupts in different patterns. It's impossible. So the best thing you can do is use collections of proxies and try and coalesce them around the same event. But data fusion is hard because it's not built on solid standard business processes. So data fusion needs um, a lot of focus and it's often done very poorly. What's interesting here is that governance for me and a lot of academics doesn't matter so much. Feedback into your system doesn't matter so much in terms of lessons learned. Uh, MDM isn't an issue. There's no CMMI. There's none of that framework that often cradles data vault so much. And security usually does as well. It's quite rare, but it, it does here. Now, I'll, I won't touch on things like healthcare data. That's a different need. But let's go for volcanoes. This is the one that I'm comfortable with, the one that we'll be exploring. Now, the premise of what I'm trying to do is that for a volcano to erupt, magma has to make its way from underground to the surface. There's no clean pipes for it. It's not like a normal textbook. It doesn't just shoot up. It has to break rock every time it does so. When it does so, it generates these little patterns. So we put a seismometer down next to it. We go up to the flanks of the volcano, dig a hole in the side, drop in a drum with 
uh, a load of accelerometers, batteries, data storage, sometimes an antenna for transmission, and we listen and we watch. What you're seeing here is over the space of um, quite a few minutes, you have two sharp events, which are called volcanotectonic events. This is where rock under stress snaps and breaks. Then afterwards, magma fills in. You can actually see after both events, the width of the tremors afterwards, the noise widens, and that's actually molten magma sloshing into that new space. And we can use these patterns to start to work out what's going on. Now, if we're given an event like this, there's a series of almost business logic that I have to go through. The first thing is, is this data actually an event or is it just noise? If it's an event, is it coming from a volcano or is it a helicopter or a truck or lightning or a rock slide? Because those happen as well. Okay, great, it's a volcanic event. Well, what type? I showed you VT events, which are sharp breaks. There's also um, hybrid events that are magma and a break or ones that come from sloshing of the magma itself, or water hammers from them, or deep tremors. There's about four or five types. We're not even sure exactly if there are five types. But once we have those and we separate them, we start to build them up across time. And we look at the time series and try to work out if it's happening more and in what pattern. And that allows us to work out if we've got a problem on our hands. And this is roughly the premise of what I'm trying to do. So I'm getting up to around this point. I'm playing around with the rest of it, but. Give me a year or so and watch this space and I'll let you know where I get. Now that's the context, but let's look at the data vault. So I'm sure many of you recognize some form of this. This is, um, this is lifted straight from the data vault practitioner course, um, or at least representation of it. And this is what a data vault looks like in terms of architecture. Now there's a lot here we can take away. I'm not doing any real-time streaming, so that part in the enterprise service bus can go. There's no write back and MDM. I don't need to worry about that. I know I'm not having to worry about a NoSQL implementation, so that can go. And what we see is actually a bit of a simpler pattern, a bit more streamlined. So I've got three core sets of eruptions I work with. I have eruptions from Montserrat. Um, I actually have some of the recordings of the big 1995 one I played with. There's an eruption in 2011 from Eritrea um, called Nabro that went up, and all of the Italian recordings of Vesuvius and Etna, especially some of the ones that happened not this year, but a few years ago from the IMGV, which is the Institute National, um, it's the Geological and Volcanological uh, Inst National In Institute. Now I'm hand, no, well, I'm hand cranking data into a staging area that then goes through a series of hard rules and lands into a Postgres server. I then automate from that point on, and as the data lands on landing, it gets scooped up and processed by a number of soft rules. That then lands into an information mark presentation area where I have a set of training sets and validation sets. Now, while I'm going through all this, I'm doing an awful lot of validation and data quality checks on my data. Um, I've had issues with my data that I'm not sure anyone else has ever had before. My favorite one was a sensor went offline and then went back online because a rat dropped into my sensor, into the bin and spawned a family. So all of my readers from that point on were um, little baby mice learning and rats learning how to walk. That's a bit of a hard one to automate the data cleaning for, but we caught it. The way I operate with it is I take information from the training sets and validation sets only. I take them and I start playing with the data and I start developing models. Now, each of those models, it's linked to those five questions I've got. So I have a model, which is, is this an event? 
And once it is, I will take the best performing model and I'll save it. I'll save a few of the others that seem promising or different and I'll save them. And I treat them like any other source. I take it into the data vault and I hold it and I store it. And then this model, and this is quite crucial, becomes a soft rule because I need it for the rest of my questions. They're all follow-ons from each other. So why should that model suddenly spray that off into some other hard drive, some other area, some other folder, just to run outside of the, the vault after I've taken all this effort to build this warehouse? And the cycle goes round and round and round. And it's all automated. Thanks for watching today's episode of Data Dialogues. I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Richard's an amazing speaker and clearly knows his stuff when it comes to data science. In the next episode, we're going to be talking about working smarter, the disciplined agile enterprise. Keep an eye out for the link of that episode of Data Dialogues.